Do you struggle with what it means to be successful in your retirement? Trust us, you're not alone. Welcome to the Retirement Success in Maine podcast. Here, you'll go in-depth with Guidance Point Advisors Investment Consultants to hear stories about how retirees in Maine are navigating a successful retirement. Get insight into the inevitable challenges of aging and define what a successful retirement looks like. Welcome, everybody, to the Retirement Success in Maine podcast. My name is Ben Smith. I'm joined by my two co-hosts, Abby Duty and Curtis Wister, the Keith Carson and Jessica Conley to my Todd Simcox. How are you guys doing today? Good. How are you? Good. For those that are maybe outside the state, those are some pretty good meteorologists that are, um, that of course, we spend a lot of time watching weather in Maine. So it's <laughs> a little, little inside joke there. Well, welcome everybody in our show. Of course, we've, we've actually been very blessed. We've covered a lot of topics. Um, I think we're on episode number 44 at this point. Yeah. So for those uh, long haulers that have been with us, uh, appreciate the listenership. So we've covered lots of things, but one thing we've really not had the conversation about yet has been caregiving. And according to the National Alliance of Caregiving and AARP, 53 million, so 53 million or 21% of Americans are providing unpaid care to an adult with health or functional needs. 24% of caregivers are caring for more than one person. And then 26% of Americans are caring for someone with Alzheimer's disease or dementia. And so not only just that as a big, hey, well, you know, we're all busy in our own lives and taking care of maybe families underneath us or friends or, you know, social lives and careers and doing all that. But also the other point of this is lastly, 26% of family caregivers report their own health as fair to poor. Mm. So as we're taking care of others, we're typically not taking care of ourselves too. So really the question we want to dig into a lot today was, so what do we need to know about caregiving before we get into the role? Because it, obviously it can become very difficult to balance our own mental, physical, and emotional health and the person we're taking care of. But also, where do I go if I need help and I have questions? How do I make sure I'm okay after the adult I'm caring for is gone? So that's really the premise of today's show. So today we have an expert that's been a well-known patient advocate and licensed clinical social worker for the last 35 years. She began her career working with geriatric patron, uh, patients who experienced catastrophic illness and counseled them and their families about adapting to these medical problems. She helped them understand their medical condition and counseled them about how to cope with the disease and its impact on their lives. She continued to work on a rehabilitation unit in a large Chicago teaching hospital with patients who had suffered traumatic brain injuries, strokes, cancer, amputations, burns, and neurological diseases like multiple sclerosis and Parkinson's disease. She also covered the emergency room for 13 years, seeing patients of all ages with a variety of medical problems. In writing her new book, Role Reversal, How to Take Care of Yourself and Your Aging Parents, our guest has come full circle. Her experience in caring for her beloved father who died at age 97 triggered her passion in reaching out to others who suddenly find themselves in a caregiver role and are uncertain about what to do or where to go for help. In this book, she, care, she shares her father's inspiring story and her personal and professional experience in assuming the challenges that come with being a caregiver for an aging loved one. Also, today's guest has been doing freelance writing for the last 20 years. The focus of her work has been on health-related topics and assisted her readers to gain knowledge that helps them feel less alone and empowers them in significant new ways. 
So at this time, I'd like to please welcome Iris Weichler to the Retirement Success in Maine podcast. Iris, appreciate you coming on. Oh, it's great to be here. I wish I could be with you in Maine. Yes. <laughs> I know. it's uh, The weather is starting to get really nice, so, so you're you're missing out. And Iris, where, where are you located right now? I'm, uh, I'm in Chicago, Illinois. Okay, so perfect. Well... I know. Uh, so you're National League with the Cubbies, and I'm sure Cubbies, not White Sox. So I guess we're on the baseball. I'm on the front. north side, so I have oh. to. Be a it's oh, just okay. So okay, so <laughs> we got a little White Sox, Red Sox. Wrigley Field. Yeah, I'm very close. I can almost hear the bat crack when a home run is hit. <laughs> well, that that's great. So uh, again, we we're sharing. We shared executives for a while. We broke curses together. A lot of compatriot uh, baseball stories there. <laughs> Well, Iris, uh, with all of our guests, as we, we dig into our shows, the first thing we want to do is get to know you a little bit more. Love to just hear a little bit about you in terms of b- a brief background and biography, including your past for social work. So where did all that start? Yeah, I was thinking about that as you introduced me. Where I grew up, there was a hospital nearby and in high school. I said, I want to I work in that hospital someday. Now, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I knew my math skills were horrific, so I was not going to be a doctor or a nurse. When I went to college, I, I majored in psychology, and, and and we worked with rats, and I knew I wanted to work with people, and so I transitioned into social work, which was probably one of the best decisions I ever made in my life. And as you described, I was a social worker on a, a physical medicine and rehab unit, so the people that I worked with came in and had horrific life-changing illnesses in a second Uh, and we had burn patients as well and seriously ill people and a a number of my patients were seniors too and the the thing I loved about that was they they welcomed our help I worked with a team of people that were incredible I worked with a physical therapist occupational speech and a nurse and, and our doctors and we truly were a team and our job was to put people back together as best we could and it was a joy for me to be there because patients came in and 99% of the time they came out a much more whole whole person being able to do a lot more than they did when they came in. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a young girl woman that came in who was 32. She had something called Guillain-Barre syndrome, which was uh, an illness that attacks attacks your organs. And she was a runner and she they wheeled her in on a gurney because she couldn't really move and it happened out of the blue. And she said to me as they were wheeling her in, and she lived in Michigan, she said, we have a race in Michigan I run every year, and next year I'm going to run it. And she did. She did. Awesome. And it was incredible. And so we had those kinds of miracles every day, and it just it just was uh, so rewarding for me and amazing. And so I, I fell in love with working with seniors there and just working with, with people in general that had these life-changing illnesses. My job was to counsel the patients, their families, and also to help them transition out of the hospital because you, you do all this work and you want to make sure that when they do return home or wherever they went, that things were in place to keep them, allow them the opportunities to continue to succeed and, and move forward. So hmm. um, that's basically where I got hooked and I haven't looked back. <laughs> and then I, I, I wasn't really a writer back then. Uh, I, I did write a book when I was there. I um and this is where I found the, the amazing part about writing. But I was, I was walking on my unit one day, and my a family members of a patient of mine were sobbing in the hall, and I wasn't quite sure what was happening. I looked in the door, and the resident was just doing an EKG, just a standard test. But they they were just so upset, and I said to them, "What what's wrong?" And 
they thought because he was hooked up to this EKG, that meant he was going to die. And the resident mm -hmm. hadn't taken the minute it would have taken to just say to them, we're just doing this simple test. And they didn't know what questions to ask. They felt mm -hmm. so vulnerable, so helpless. Mm -hmm. And so that was, uh, as Oprah would say, a light bulb moment for me. And I, I realized that if people knew the questions to ask or they had, were educated at times in their lives where they're so incredibly vulnerable, we're in the middle of a, a healthcare crisis that it could really make a difference in their lives. So I ended up writing a book based on that called Patient Power, How to Have a Say During Your Hospital Stay. And from then on, I realized that writing was something that I really enjoyed. And so that's when I pursued my writing piece in my career. And Iris, too, we'll we'll make sure for those that are listening in to today's show to put those links to those books, because I, I know we're going to cover, probably cover some of the topics that are that are in Absolutely. them and multiples of them. But we'll, we'll we'll have our show notes for those that want to listen in and and they can uh, find the links. And if they want to go again, the, the role reversal book, but also the medical empowerment piece, love to whatever all the stories there, love to have those links uh, if people want to go acquire them, that they'd be there. Yeah, I'd love to hear a little bit about, obviously, again, social work is a very broad area, right? Is We've had lots of social workers um, or, or several social workers come on our show, and it seems like there's just a lot of synergy between, hey, here's where we're talking about aging and empowerment and trying to find your best self and which are, are themes throughout life anyway, right? It's not just an aging thing uh, for, you know, you're getting, you know, retirement age. It's really at all ages, we can kind of be there. But can you talk about just that gravitation that, that you had towards caregiving and aging? Like what was the, what was the impetus that kind of got you uh, kind of to be more focused there? Well, it was really interesting when I started working on role reversal with my dad. And this is unbelievable when I look back, but when I was growing up, there was always a relative in my house that my parents were taking care of. My, my, three of my grandparents lived with us, cousins lived with us, my uncle lived with us. And so I had these models that were always there with me. And, and so I think that really, really made a difference for me. And it really showed me the importance of caregiving. My parents were both loving, caring people. And that's not to say that it always went beautifully and smoothly, by the way, too. My mom and her mom had a lot of fights. And my grandmother, my maternal grandmother died of cancer. So she got quite sick. And so that, that was, for me, really important. But also the other additional piece was as a young adult, as an adult, I had two friends that got seriously ill and had no family. And it turned out their family was the family of choice. And so friends banded together to be their caregivers. And then I became a caregiver for my mom. She died at a really young age. She was only 57. And so uh, she had breast cancer and it metastasized to her brain. And so it was a very long, very difficult. She was ill for, really ill for a couple of years. So I had all that experience and, and it really, it really sunk into my bones and it really made me realize how, how important caregiving is. And at the beginning of the show, when you mentioned the 53 million, I have to tell you, COVID sort of changed the landscape of caregiving because as a result of COVID, of course, people were stuck in their homes and the support people that came in to help them weren't available. Mm -hmm. So that number that you, you gave from the Family Alliance during COVID, that 53 million went up to 63 million. Wow. And, wow. and these were people that weren't necessarily caregivers before. 
And so, and also they didn't, a lot of them had lost their jobs and the financial support that they had, so they couldn't afford to bring in outside help. And the other interesting thing that happened as a result of COVID was before then, the average age of a caregiver was 49, taking care of a 69-year-old person. But the numbers went down in terms of the age of the of caregiving, and millennials really stepped up to the plate, to use a cub metaphor, and uh, <laughs> and they and they really had a had a had to really help out. And also, the other people that were really affected by it were those sandwich generation people that you referred to, Ben. The people that were all of a sudden they're homeschooling, they're taking care of their kids, they're taking care of perhaps their parents, and those people really really got hit by it really really hard and. Not not many good things came out of COVID, but I guess you could say one good thing was it highlighted the gaps in our healthcare system, and it highlighted mm-hmm. the real importance of having more services available to people. And hopefully, we'll learn from that, and and hopefully, we'll have more programming and funding in place to put more support for people in those areas. Yeah, and, and Iris, I, I think that's, that's something where, you know, I think when we're all scripting our lives and we're thinking about the things that we want to do and all the fun we're going to have and all the the places we're going to go see and the, the success you're going to have in different levels of your life and career and personal and all this, I, I, you know, for, for maybe a lot of us is, hey, all of a sudden you're thrust into a caregiving role and there's there's kind of lots of things that kind of go along with that. But also, you know, we spend a lot of our lives training to that career success and training to friendship su- success and, and working on those things, right? Working on all those skills. But it feels like we're, we don't really, you know, we're thrust into a caregiving role perhaps. Uh, maybe again, uh, when I say thrust is maybe I'm doing it very willingly and I really want to do this and not, I love this person i really want to help them out but i maybe i don't have the training right as no one's ever told me what what it means to actually do the caregiving role and what that means for me and what what sacrifices i might have to make to do that and how do i get support that's a lot of the show and i want to want to dig into that with you a little here but of course we always want to start with a little foundational piece right is is kind of get into just this kind of let's all use the same language let's really use the same definitions so I'd like to ask you first about that kind of common foundational knowledge can you just define what caregiving is and then who are we giving care to yeah so caregiving is anyone who provides physical emotional psychological assistance and support to someone who has a medical need a mental health need who cannot take care of themselves without that assistance Um, And it may be because of a medical condition. It may be because of a disability, either a mental health issue or physical disability. So that's how I would describe what a caregiver is. Um, And and hopefully, so what the goal of that caregiver is, is to help provide as much a quality of life as possible to that person. And that is an incredibly lofty and difficult goal. But that, but that's it. And and I I thought your intro to this question was really uh, important, Ben, because that something we need to remember is when we're, we are taking care of people, and most of the time, uh, it is our parents. We all are aging now. The wonder of medications has helped us all live longer lives, which is a wonderful thing. That doesn't necessarily that we all live quality, healthy lives, though. And so uh, the majority of caregivers are people taking care of their parents. And so one of the pieces of that is we bring all that relationship stuff that we had when we were growing up into that caregiver role. And I think people don't always think about that too much. There are a number of people that are also taking care of spouses, 
Uh, a lot of veterans come home and they have injuries and, and, and limitations because of their experience. And so there are a number of spousal caregivers as well. And then there are a number of caregivers that are taking care of um, kids that have some kind of medical or physical or mental health issue as well. Um, and so you kind of touched on this a little bit, but how does the role of a caregiver change as the adult we're taking care of ages, right? So you mentioned that a lot of times it's the parent that that we are caregiving for. So how does that care change as the parent or whoever we're taking care of ages? Well, one of the things that happens is that I think it's important to mention since the majority of, of the people we care for are our parents is to think about this, that that's that we lose them twice. We lose them because we see the person that we know changing because of their medical condition or because they, they may have some kind of dementia or Alzheimer's where mentally they change. So that's an enormous loss right there. And then the second time is we lose them when they physically die. And I don't think people think about that all the time, but it is really important to think about. Um, and then also you, you see them physically change. And with as they age, when people get older, they experience uh, a medical problem. And the, the thing about when you're older, it cascades. So in my dad's case, for example, we were really blessed. We had him till he was 97. And he was in his 80s climbing on the roof, cleaning the leaves out of the gutters. He was a really vigorous guy, much to our our horror. Um, but he worked out regularly. He took really great care of himself. And then finally in his 80s, he moved to, by his own choice, moved to an assisted living place. And But anyway, what happened with him was he got pneumonia. And then for, when he got the pneumonia, he was in the hospital. He needed a pacemaker. And then when he got the pacemaker, he had another issue that came up and he couldn't swallow. And this is what happens when you're older. Uh, and particularly for older people that are kind of not mobile and trapped in their beds, they they lose uh, muscle muscle mass. They may have skin breakdown. So it's one thing after another. And so even as a caregiver, when you prepare to take care of someone for a particular reason, other things occur that you don't anticipate or that you don't expect. And so that's a really important piece of the caregiving with, with people that are getting older. Um, and so, and the other piece I want to mention is too, as, as people age, we meet, need to be much more attentive of them too, as, as their adult children or as potential caregivers. Um, if your parents are at home, some things to look for is uh, changes in personal hygiene, also cluttering, also bills not being paid, also forgetting, forgetting that we had a phone call about something or forgetting a birthday, um, looking at the physical layout of their home and are there issues that could be safety issues, for example. In my dad's case, someone I saw regularly, I started to notice subtle changes with him. I noticed we took a walk and his balance was a little off. I noticed that he'd forgotten a couple things in a conversation. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that his endurance was off too. And he didn't notice any of that. And that's another important thing I want to say. Sometimes your aging loved ones don't see what we see. Sure. Mm -hmm. so I was taking a walk with my dad and I noticed these things and I was concerned enough and he trusted me enough. We had a great relationship. I said to him, you know, I think we need to go to the doctor. And so we went to the doctor. Now, again, he thought he was fine. He was humoring me. And his doctor was my doctor, someone I'd worked with at the hospital. We knew each other a long time. So he's interviewing my dad. I'm behind him. And he'd say to my dad, are you doing well? And my dad kept saying yes. And I was behind signaling no. This isn't the correct answer. Doctor asked him to take off his shirt to test his blood pressure. And my dad had a watch on his wrist and a watch on his elbow. 
And I said to my father, why are you wearing two watches? And he looked down and he said, I have been looking for that watch for three weeks. I'm so glad we got here. The doctor told us to immediately go to the emergency room. We did. And from the emergency room, we went to an MRI and the MRI discovered he had a brain hemorrhage. We went from the MRI to the ICU and he had brain surgery the next day. And it was just the little things that I noticed that in spending time with him. And so that's what I'm saying. Um, as people age, things do happen and do change. And it's really, it's really behooves people that are around them regularly to just look for things. Also, if there's no food in the fridge, for example, or thinking about safety issues, if it, are they safe to be cooking? Are they safe to be standing? If you're living in a home with stairs, is your loved one um, able to climb up and down the stairs safely? All those kinds of things um, are really important. And so kind of going along with what you were just talking about, how long is the average role of being a caregiver? So how long does that usually last? Well, um, about 30% of people take care of someone for a year. And then it it gets a little higher. uh, 24% provide care for more than five years and 15% provide care for more than 10 years. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And And that's those cascading things that I'm talking about too. And also if someone has a degenerative or progressive medical disease, like a neurological disease, obviously then you need to prepare for it being a more long-term kind of situation. Hmm. Um, But it's really important for people that are potential caregivers to have that medical information to ask those questions. So you know what to anticipate, what's realistic, how do you need to plan? and, and, And those kinds of things are really important to have in place before you jump into the caregiving role. So, you know, you're prepared as best as possible. Hmm. So this is a good segue here. So speaking of people um, who become caregivers, something we've, the three of us have seen with our clients who become caregivers is that they just get so invested in that person they're giving care to that they sometimes tend to forget about themselves, whether it's physically, mentally, emotionally, and ultimately that that can lead to burnout you know and we think something we we kind of assume there is they're almost scared to ask for help and we know that's something you talk about in your book role reversal how to take care of yourself and your aging parents but so i guess what i want to ask you is how can caregivers stay mindful of burnout and what are some ways you know that caregivers can avoid burnout yeah burnout is like the number one issue for caregivers and part of that is 65% of caregivers are women and women are notoriously bad at taking care of themselves. And Curtis, I think you're absolutely right. People aren't uh, willing or able to ask for help. And that's that's a main issue. They feel guilty for asking for help because they feel that means that they failed in some way as a caregiver. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the person they're taking care of says, oh, I don't want a stranger coming in. I, I only want you to help me. Sure. And so that's a huge issue as well. But one of the things that caregivers don't do is they don't pay attention to their own bodies and their own minds. So uh, I think you alluded to this at the beginning, Ben, but but what happens for caregivers and physical symptoms that occur and things to look for are things like digestive issues like your gut, headaches, body aches, and more physical problems than normal because your Mm -hmm. immune system gets, gets affected by caregiving too, because you're not, you're not sleeping. You may not be eating properly. Mm-hmm. You, um, I remember laying in my bed, looking up at the ceiling, waiting for a phone call because 
inevitably the calls came about my dad between midnight and 7 a.m., the emergency calls, so I couldn't sleep, mm. which leads me to the other issue in terms of burnout, and that's the uh, emotional or psychological piece of it. For caregivers, the two top symptoms that they have are depression um, and anxiety because it, it's just so overwhelming. And there's that grief that we talked about a little bit earlier about losing a loved one and seeing them change and not being able to help them or stop them, stop the illness the way that you'd like. Mm. And the third thing I want to mention is behavioral caregivers that are burned out. They, they will notice that they become angrier quicker, that they will be, they are more irritable. And so if, if you see behavioral symptoms like that, it's really important to pay attention to all of that as a caregiver and to tell yourself that if, if you're as a caregiver, if you're you're not well, then you can't be a good caregiver to the person you're taking care of. So, as you said, Curtis, being able and willing to ask for help is a really important piece of this. Yeah. And giving yourself permission to do that without guilt. The other piece of it is, and this is super hard for people, is to say no when you're asked to do something that you know you can't do. Mm. And people aren't able to do that as well. And there are things that need to be done that we we don't have the training for. If someone needs an IV, if someone needs skin care, those are things that the majority of people don't know how to do. And so you you do. That's why there are home health people. That's why there's healthcare professionals to come and help with that. Hmm. And so it's really important to be able to do those things. I think most of all, that's, that's asking for help is a huge piece of it and acknowledging without guilt that what you want to do isn't what you're able to do and not, and not being angry at yourself for that. And Iris, I, I guess what's, what's an interesting point you're bringing up is you kind of have a, and maybe there's a, there's a tragedy of, of irony that's happening here, right? Is you, here you have someone that's aging and is declining and is need of caregiving. There probably is a, you know, and we've covered this with other guests, there's a resistance to, accepting help because it feels to them like a loss of independence, right? It feels like, you know, I, I really, by, by saying I'm declining here and here, or, or I'm, I'm really resigning to a reality, but in my mind, if I resign to that reality, I get to keep independence because I can not, I don't have people checking in on me as much and I can do more of what I want to do. And, and they kind of view this as, you know, getting into this, accepting more help is going to be more prison-like and just being dependent on everybody for everything. But what you also kind of made the point of, hey, the caregiver themselves that's giving the care is also saying, hey, I, I feel like I should be all-encompassing and be able to do all these things. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I really don't want to ask for help either. So it's like everybody's just not wanting to ask for help. And, you know, it's, there's kind of this loss of communication that's happening here that we're, we're really not willing to admit. We're not willing to uh, kind of look to overcome that. And, and, you know, I think what you're trying to say in a lot of, lot of your conversations here with us is, hey, just being able to say, hey, I need help. It's a really big step towards um, kind of getting, getting to those ports where we're all healthier and a little bit more in balance. You brought up one thing I, I want to ask you a question about sure my grandmother came down with dementia and just and it was a very and it felt like it was a three month that just really rapid decline of course you're seeing signs maybe you know you look backwards once you see that happens you look back a year or two and you go man there were there were definitely signs it was there it was slowly progressing but then it just rapidly snowballed down the hill so it's just tremendously sad to see somebody you love and in there, they're really just seeing themselves just lose independence. And as you mentioned that grief, 
So I guess what I, what I really want to ask with you is how do we ourselves as caregivers, right? So we're providing the care to somebody. How do we cope with that grief? How do we cope with, with that emotion as we continue to see that our loved ones decline? Because it is just, it's just tremendously sad to go in. And I, I just from an aside too, from other family members, um, you know, that would step in and provide care. Some of them just couldn't cope. And it just felt like they had to retreat from the situation because if they went to the situation itself, it was just so tremendously sad for them that they just couldn't handle that emotion. And it was just better for them to just be away completely. And and again, we all kind of cope with that differently, but how do you see people cope and what are some strategies to maybe still provide care, but also dealing and handling that grief? Yeah, that's such a great question. Thank you, Ben. I think a part of it is people agree to do things and all good with a good conscience and want to help. And like you said, they step in and that grief is so overwhelming as they see their loved one changing that, that they can't do it, that they have to step back. So it's really important to have a team of people in place and, and respite care is another way to prevent the burnout. Uh, having identified people in your immediate family that has a certain skill set and, and tap into that. Maybe uh, my, my brother's not a hospital guy, but he, but he was there to help my dad um, with other things. And so in terms of the grief, though, it's really important to acknowledge all the aspects of grief. What, what are the losses associated as you see your loved one changing, like you described your, your dementia with the grandmother? And it's, it's enormous number of losses. It's a loss of personality. It's the loss of the memories you had together. It's a loss of that relationship. It's the loss of their physical and emotional condition. So of course, there's grief tied up in all of that. But um, I think it's important to give yourself permission to grieve those losses. Because if people swallow the grief or don't acknowledge it, it comes up in other ways that can interfere with caregiving and also interfere with the quality of your personal life as a caregiver. So along the way, every step of that way, caregivers need to have somebody that they can talk to. It might be a family member. It might be a friend. It might be a priest. It might be you need to see a counselor. And also uh, another piece of it to help with that that's really powerful, and it really helped people during COVID when we couldn't get out. We're so lucky in that there are incredible caregiver support groups online. So at three in the morning, when you feel like you're really going to lose it, you can go online and find a support, a chat room or a support group. So like Family Caregiver Alliance or the National Alliance of Caregivers have sites that offer uh, support groups where people can go. I think it's really important to talk to other caregivers to understand that you're not alone in feeling this way and that you're not less of a person for feeling this way or inadequate in some ways. Sometimes that grief turns into personal blame because you feel like you can't do be in 12 places at the same time. And so it's important to identify with, to find other people that identify with you and can be there with you and normalizes those feelings of grief and loss and inadequacy and anger and the things that you described, Ben. And also connecting with other caregivers is a great, great way to get tips because you say, I, I was worried that mom was going to fall when she got up to go to the bathroom and someone might say, oh, yeah, I I got this mat that we put right by her bed. And when she stands up, a little bit, a little alarm goes off and I know that she's awake. So and um, it just helps you feel less alone because that's one of the things that happens for caregivers. It's such an isolating situation and you feel so terribly, terribly alone. It's really important, important to incorporate that in your caregiver plan to allow times for yourself 
mm-hmm. um, whether it's taking a hot bath, whether it's taking a walk, whether it's talking to a friend, whatever it is, you include moments where you can have joy. And you can build those moments into your caregiving relationship too. Um, caregiving can be really challenging, but it can also offer the most beautiful, intimate moments with people. It can help people rebuild relationships. So if you could put things in your caregiving relationship, uh, you described your grandmother with dementia. One of the things that, that research has found is that that deep memory music is an incredibly beautiful tool to use. And so playing a song that was your grandmother's favorite song, even people with dementia who have no memory, it's deep embedded in the the brain and they will Mm. suddenly remember the words to that song and you can sit there and sing it together. And that can create beautiful moments. Uh, Even going out, if you have someone who loves flowers and they can't walk, but maybe you have a garden. So creating moments like that can be so beautiful, so rewarding and can help deal with the grief and the loss that we've been talking about. And you mentioned that, and, and she was um, uh, both my grandparents were big Elvis Presley fans, so that was a <laughs> that that was a very easy thing to kind of go into and turn into is uh, play a little Elvis, and that would that would start both of them on on that. So you're you're absolutely right, and and sometimes again you would you'd get that moment where they would come back a little bit, right, and you'd see some signs just from that music would or bass or some sort of cue would kind of get them going. But but Iris, that's a really good point. Yeah, reminiscing therapy is a really beautiful tool, too. It's just having photographs of family members or telling stories, bringing up stories about family members, that's a beautiful thing, too. And again, those memories are still there. They just need a trigger. If you have photographs of someone, then that can be a cue. Mm-hmm. Or seeing an old movie that you know the person loved and can be a really joyful, beautiful experience, too. Uh, so there are a lot of creative ways that that can help um, help the caregiver and help the person that's being cared for and create beautiful memories. We have, we have a dear friend. Uh, this was one of the peers of, that I helped take care of and he loved music and he had a pile of CDs and I, I'd go over every day to take care of him. And I'd say, what, what music are in, are you in a mood for today? He had a brain, a very aggressive brain tumor. And so um, spending time with him, he chose the music and then we would sing and then we would, we would talk about where we were at the time when we first heard it, and it, it created beautiful moments. That's really wonderful. And so we've also heard from several clients who, when their loved one passes away, right, that they've been caring for for maybe years at this point, that all of a sudden they, as the caregiver, kind of lose their sense of purpose. Yeah. Um, and so how do you help that caregiver in that post-caregiving state rediscover their sense of purpose in life and kind of grieve and then move forward into the, this new part of their life. I think we referenced earlier that the isolation piece of caregiving, and I think one of the ways to help move forward, and it could be baby steps, picking your best friend or someone that you feel comfortable with, but reducing that isolation and, and can, reconnecting with people is, is really important. And also having identifying someone in your life that you can talk with. It, it can be a counselor, it can be a friend, it can be a priest. Again, someone you can talk candidly about. Um, and then, again, baby steps, reestablishing an old hobby that you, that you enjoyed, reminding yourself about what things brought you joy, what things brought you passion. Um, maybe you played guitar and you couldn't do that as a caregiver, picking up your guitar again. And slowly, maybe going back to church or whatever, 
things that will nourish your spirit, nourish your soul. And also journaling is a really nice thing for people too. Of course, I'm biased about writing as a writer, but uh, that's a great that's a great way to work through your grief to talk about things that are, you're kind of concerned about setting goals and and having that as a place to to sort of give yourself purpose and eventually creating projects that you enjoy and and projects too that have an, a beginning and an end so you feel like you have a sense of achievement and accomplishment that feels really good so Iris, I just want to kind of flip the coin for a second here. You know, to this point, we've been talking a lot about the caregiver themselves. And I want to kind of talk about the person who's in need of the care. So in previous episodes of our show, we've talked a lot about solo, solo agers um, or other populations who may not have kids or immediate family members that can step right in as a caregiver um, as we age. So I want to ask you, what advice do you have for someone who doesn't have that immediate person already in their life established to step in as their caregiver? Um, well, it's a great question, Curtis. And like you said, there are people that don't have that. So there are a number of opportunities. Um, one thing is to kind of think about immediately who's nearby, a neighbor, uh, a friend, someone from your, your church or your temple or whatever religious organization you're a part of. Mm-hmm. Also, if you're a senior, you can go to your um, local senior center or area on aging, contact them for advice and information. Uh, another really valuable resource that people don't know about are people that are called geriatric care managers. And a geriatric care manager is someone like me, who's a social worker, or sometimes they're a nurse, who have expertise um, in aging, because a lot of the people you're describing are older people. Mm. And they will come in and they will uh, do an assessment with you, find out exactly what you need or rec- make recommendations for you about what you need. And they'll go a step further and they'll say, okay, you need assisted living. These are the places in, in our area that offer that. These are the questions you need to ask. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing. Um, and so I would definitely recommend them. Uh, there's a, a site online called uh, aginglifecare.org. And all you need to do is put in your zip code and it will tell you people in your local area that could do this. Mm. So I would say that's a wonderful resource that I would yeah. I would really strongly recommend. The beauty of that is you, you design an individual care plan with them so they can be a part of whatever you need for as long as you need it. If something is set up and it doesn't work, you can always bring them back into the picture to help. Mm. Um, so those are some, some really important places to go. Family Caregiver Alliance on network also has information and the um, Alliance for caregiving also has resources, information and education on their sites for people of all ages. If you're a veteran, I would go to your local veteran um, VA hospital because they have a whole network of people and places that you can turn to. Hmm. And I I would also, I was just going to say to I just was going to say to you, you can always contact your doctor and they may know or a local hospital and they may have information about programs as well. While you're doing that, Iris, I just had to go to Aging Life Care, so uh, the agingLifeCare.org. It's like, yeah, that's pretty slick. You just did your zip code, and boom, there, there's some people that pop up that can help you with that. That's, that's pretty great. neat. Magic of the internet. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I want to ask about the, really our next part was again, Iris, a lot of your written pieces, you really reference that it's important to have the caregiver conversation, right? And, you know, I, I think that for, for maybe some of us of that, you know, you're stepping into a caregiving role, it might be tough to have that conversation. Can you talk about what that is? Like what sort of things we need to talk about within the caregiver conversation 
And, but also what do caregivers need to know to be well positioned to step in when the time is right? Because I think when is a really important question here. And as we kind of alluded to previously, there's just sometimes this resistance on when that next step is necessary or when I need help, because it, it's this fight against this uh, thought of being independent or dependent on somebody else. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more, Ben. There's a, a number of aspects to that. The first thing is, no one wants to have that conversation. <laughs> and the reason is you don't want to think about someone you love needing help and getting sick. And the other piece of it is that reminds us that someday we're going to get sick and someday we're going to die. And so no one wants to think about their own mortality. The other piece of it is just like what you said, it's, it's that boundary thing and respecting people's boundaries. And, and it also opens up a door when you have this conversation, you need to talk about things that are uncomfortable to talk about. Children don't want to talk to their parents about how much money they have or what their insurance mm. is. Mm. And so the biggest mistake and and not having the conversation is probably one of the biggest mistakes that caregivers make. The second thing is they wait too long to have it. So what I would say is, and we learned this lesson with my mom, unfortunately, because she was so young, we didn't have that conversation. She got sick when she was 52. She was perfectly healthy. That's young. And so, yeah. And it's a give. Having the conversation is the biggest gift as a adult parent you can give your adult child. Because what happened with my mom was, uh, she got very sick and and her cancer metastasized to her brain, and she couldn't tell me what she wanted. And so I, my dad came to me and said, "You're the medical person. You make all the decisions." And so I was having to make care decisions for her, not knowing what she would have wanted. Mm. So what you want to do is have the conversation when someone is young and someone is healthy. That's number one, because then you know the information that they're giving you is real and that it's accurate. And you want to come from a place of, of love and collaboration, not confrontation. So you don't want to say, when you get old, this is what I'm going to do. What you want to say is, I love you. I really care about you. I want you to have a quality of life. I want you to live as long as possible. And I want to work with you to understand what we can do to make that happen. Mm. And you sometimes you, you can't wait for an opening because that door may never open. That's number one. You mm. may need to be the one to bring that conversation up if you're talking to your parents. And it's not a one-time conversation. It's a process. So if you open the door and the door slams in your face, it, it hasn't really slammed. The door's open a little bit, and you can go back and refer to it then. But what you want to do is say, ask questions like, I'm really interested in knowing when you get older how you see how you see yourself aging. Do you see that you can do you see yourself staying at home? Okay, and if it's a home with their the bedrooms are on the second floor, okay, let's think about what kinds of things we could do so that you could be safe and and stay here. Are you thinking that only family can take care of you or are you are you okay with us bringing in professionals if the time comes? And 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 on opening the door like that and then seeing where it goes and then being flexible and not taking it personally if your parent says, I'm never going to die, so let's not talk about it. Because whether you realize it or not, that door has been opened and mm -hmm. it's a conversation that you can't go came back to. It was such a contrast between my mom and my dad and I had the whole conversation. I knew everything about exactly what he wanted. And it made my role as his primary caregiver so much easier because I understood. I also... Um, it's very important to have the legal stuff in place too, legal documents. That's another thing that people don't mm -hmm. do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So and that's beyond a will that, that can be a healthcare proxy. So who's going to be making decisions 
and including information like if I'm on a ventilator or if I can't communicate, this is what I want because, and people are terrified about doing that stuff, but it's such a gift to the person that needs care and also the person that's, that's the caregiver. Uh, I call it a, a, a map, but having all this information is really important. Knowing about the finances so that if you need to bring somebody in, what your insurance covers, uh, what doctors you want to use, all those kinds of things. And the other thing that people don't do is they don't update that information. They have it. And then mm-hmm. and then the person that was going to be the caregiver moved to California and all of a sudden now you're so you have to revisit yeah. it from time to time, too. But I have to tell you, when my dad my dad died, it was he he I had a key to his safe deposit box, and he said, "When I die, you get there right away because I don't want the government coming in." And he had this whole list of things he wanted me to do, and it, you know, it's kind of what you were talking about, Curtis. It, it, as moving from that caregiver role on, he made it so much easier for me because he gave me a list of tasks of things to do, and mm-hmm. it gave me some in, initial purpose. And then when I was finished with the things that he asked me to do, then I could move on, and it, it's really really important. Mm-hmm. Um, so is there a consensus as to when is the best time to kind of step into this role that you just described as being kind of a full-time caregiver? And then how does that role either expand or shrink over time? Well, in terms of the timing of it, um, I'd say it really is individual that what I described earlier, like with my dad, I noticed his hygiene was slipping. I noticed mm-hmm. he was a real fastidious guy and his hair wasn't combed. He was wearing clothing that was that wasn't washed. He, mm-hmm. But the, the personal boundaries in that what you were talking about, Ben, that independence dependence thing right. is so tricky. So in my dad's case, uh, we wanted to respect his privacy. We didn't want to be giving him a shower. We know he didn't want us to be giving him a shower, but he was living in assisted living. So what we did was, unbeknownst to him, we paid for people to come in and he thought they were coming in because they really liked him and they wanted to spend time with him. <laughs> but while they were there, he would take a shower. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. being creative like that. So we respected his boundaries. We knew that he was safe and we knew that people were there watching him when they needed to be. Mm-hmm. So watching those cues, like I talked about earlier and being proactive is really important and trying to honor boundaries as best as possible. And then moving forward from then as things change and perhaps get worse, upping the level of care. So Iris, so you, you kind of, again, you've, you've made the point a couple of times about respecting boundaries and it just, it's tough. Uh, I just, uh, from a kind of family experience and just seeing on my in-law side, I see where my, my wife's grandmother was just very resistant to, she was okay with getting help while she was in her home. But when it come to even have conversations of, Hey, I'm burning you out. You're, you're my daughter. I'm burning you out. I'm really seeing that. And it just, she required more and more almost constant immediate attention throughout all hours of the day and all hours of the night. So it was really burning out really all the siblings together kind of helping in this situation. So in, and they, maybe they over, it felt like from, you know, just kind of what I see is maybe they overly respected the boundary, right? They're saying, Hey, I, I, I hear her saying she really doesn't want to move out of the house. She really needs this full-time care, which we're not able to provide. We're trying to do it, but she's, she says she's not ready to move into an assisted living facility. She's really not saying she's saying, Oh, well, you know, it's October and I just had my birthday. I really want to be for Christmas one more time in my house. And, 
you know, there's always a delay and a stall that's happening. And meanwhile, here's the kids giving the care and they're going, geez, you know, I, I woke up at 2 a.m. I had to go over and run over there. And she, you know, she couldn't find this or she thought she heard somebody outside the house. And and so we're calling the police and it, all these things are going on. It's just like and they're, again, sandwiched in terms of taking care of their own kids and yeah. all the other stuff that's going on with their own careers. So I guess my question, too, about this boundary, respecting those boundaries is, you know, at what point is it, you know, respecting boundaries versus but you also have to respect your own boundaries here, too, and making sure you're balancing that between it, because it just it it feels like you can be in a no win situation there. Yeah, boy, I, I'm sure there's a lot of your listeners that are going to go. That's me. That's me. When they hear this. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, right. Yeah, I. Totally, totally important issue. And I can tell you personally, my dad was um, still in his apartment in the assisted living. And I got so many emergency room calls that I felt like Norm walking into church. Cheers. I'd walk in the emergency room and people would say, hi, Iris. And I knew the names of all the doctors. That was that was the point. And so there are a couple things you can do in answer to your question, Ben. One is maybe it, the decision shouldn't come from me. You need to get a doctor to come in and say to your loved one, mm-hmm. it's not safe for you to be here anymore. Or that geriatric care manager that we talked about, yeah, uh, sure. sort of a, a mediator type of person, someone that uh, that they don't perceive has an angle, but can accurately say, because sometimes, let's face it, families are families. And sometimes parents don't want to listen to their kids or wives don't want to listen to their husbands or whatever. You bring sure. all, as I said, you bring all that family stuff with you. So Bringing someone in, it might be a trusted neighbor, whoever, someone that you know they like and respect, that they can listen to. There are little things you can do, like if a loved one is at home and there's safety issues. Uh, and this, again, came up during the pandemic. Technology is a beautiful thing. And so a lot of people, because they couldn't physically be with their loved ones, there's all kinds of devices uh, out there where if someone falls, you can know about it. If someone moves from one room to another there's all kinds of things to monitor safety. But the message, again, you need to continue to relay is I love you with all my heart, but safety's become an issue. And you bring somebody in that has a little more credibility than you do with the person you're talking to. Mm-hmm. And you move from there. In my father's case, we eventually we eventually had to say, you've, you've fallen so many times, you've done this so many times. He kept pulling out his catheters and um, and mm-hmm. it was really bad, really bad. So that was the point in time when we, we said you, you need to up the level of care. And we, we had to move to a skilled nursing facility. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, and, that's and what so I would recommend. I, so Iris, I want to ask about that. Cause again, he's probably, again, he's pulling at catheters. He's really, he's obviously not safe. So how did he take that? Right. So there's, there's gotta be this, you know, the caregiver conversation may, might be elevating here a little bit more of, Hey, maybe you will have to be a little bit more firm with, with why things have to change and where they have to change out together. Right. Yeah. And again, what I said about the caregiver conversation is it's not a one shot deal. And as we talked about the beginning Mm. Of, of our interview, people's medical condition changes or their emotional condition changes or circumstances change. And so there's always that caveat. Let's talk about it in a month. Let's talk about it in two months. Let's review where things are at. So always put that sort of trap door there. In my dad's case, 
uh, what we said to him was, we used the doctor. I called the doctor again, and he said, listen, you're falling. These these things are happening. It's a safety issue. And I used my my new friends in the emergency room, too. to uh to help help reinforce the, what we were saying and then i said to him um you need physical occupational therapy uh let's go to a place that offers that and let's see where things go and move on from there and in fact we did go to a place that he was not particularly happy with and so and and one of my siblings said i'm not sure about this place so i said fine and we ended up finding another place because he said, I'd like to go somewhere else. And he loved it. Mm-hmm. That was the place he mm-hmm. ended up dying. Mm-hmm. And my siblings were all happy with it. And, and it turned out to be a really good thing. So as much as possible and as much as reasonable giving people a choice. In my dad's case, when he moved to assisted living, I didn't. My dad sold his house and he said, I'm moving in three weeks. Let's find a place. I'm going to, I need a place to live. You help me find it. And so, <laughs> so I was like. I thought he was joking, but he wasn't. So, so what I did was I, I narrowed it down to two places, and I took him with me, and we had a meal there because food was the most important thing in his life next to his family. And he, ma- he made the choice. I didn't make it for him. And so as much as possible, giving the person you're taking care of, within reason, of course, power and control, because as you talked about, Ben, that that loss of independence, that it's just so it's so hard. It's so hard. Yep. That's why it's so hard to get older people to stop driving because mm-hmm. because cars represent independence for yeah. people. And that's why you have these fights with people about not you know taking their keys away. It, it, all these things represent independence. And I think it's important to acknowledge that verbally and just say, I know it's really hard for you to think about leaving the house. You've been here your whole life. It's really hard for me, too. Let's talk about what we can do to just make sure that you're as safe as possible. And we'll include the things that are important to you in the next step, whatever it may be. Mm, I Mm -hmm. like that. Iris, I have one final question for you on this episode, um, and it's going to rotate a little bit. So here we are on the Retirement Success in Maine podcast. One question we love to ask all of our guests is, what is your personal definition of retirement success? Well, my personal definition is finding meaningful things to do in my life. And so for me, uh, what I do is I, I wake up in the morning, and this is going to sound funny, but I, I take a walk with my dog, which to me is so relaxing. Yeah. And I get up very early, and I allow time for myself. I make a nice cup of tea, and I do a jigsaw puzzle. And the reason I do a jigsaw puzzle is it's from my mind. It's a very quiet, fun way to work work my mind and wake up. And then at the end, I have a really beautiful completed piece of work. I play guitar. I started playing guitar during the, uh, during COVID. And now I play every day and I hadn't touched my guitar for months before then. So music, bringing music back in my life and writing. I love, I love writing. And so I've I've incorporated that into my regular routine as well. And so I have many joyful moments and also spending time with family and friends. That's great. Well, and, and I'll add Iris as um, being a podcaster extraordinaire here too, that, you know, you've been a wonderful guest. You really have been a treat to have on here. Cause like, again, I've, these are the conversations we need to need to be having. And these are the things that people I think are really struggling with, as we said, the, the level of reach and depth of people that are giving care and receiving care in this country, but globally anyway, 
we just need to have these conversations. So someone that has the expertise you have, being able to share that wisdom with us, be able to share kind of your personal experiences. We really can't thank you enough. This has been uh, such a wonderful treat to have you. And, um, and what a wonderful show kind of in our library too to have. So thank you for, for being a wonderful guest. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thanks for your questions and for allowing me to be on the show. All right. Well, Iris, I appreciate the time and we'll catch you next time. Thank you. You right, well. Take care. So I thought Iris Weichler did a really fantastic job today, right? Mm -hmm. The the topic Mm -hmm. being, again, balancing caregiving for aging parents and taking care of yourself, right? We didn't want this just to be one or the other. I think there, you know, it's a, it's a partnership relationship that's happening there about somebody that is in need of care and somebody that's providing the care. And I I think sometimes, uh, which I I, I like what her, um, her book is really talking about is, is taking care of both, right. Mm -hmm. And, and having the conversation about that, I thought was, was pretty important. So again, Iris, um, again, had, had a really good, robust experience. I thought uh, brought a lot to the table today. Uh, As always like to wrap up our shows, give a little bit of lessons that we took away uh, from, from today. Um, I'll actually start this one. And I like to just kind of reference one thing we were going to actually ask her or really talk to, we just didn't have time was, um, about resources locally that we can uh, use around caregiving. And and actually, one of the things that we can go back to, if you go back way back in the library to, uh, to number two, we talked to Diane Walsh, who's the executive director of the Eastern Area Agency on Aging. And she was referencing one thing I, I just kind of kept in the Rolodex until today's episode was, hey, they actually have a, in all the area agency of aging throughout the state, they have uh, caregiving support groups. So you're giving care and you go, I feel like I'm on an island. I don't know what I'm doing. I need to talk to other people and maybe they're well, maybe they're already gone through this stage and I'm only on this stage and they're well past that. Uh, You can talk to people that are also giving care or have gone through being a caregiver and maybe the person that they've taken care of is now passed away or not in need of care anymore. Mm -hmm. So just getting in a support group um, and be able to talk to So I know Iris kind of talked about like Facebook groups or community groups online. Maybe that's helpful for some people. Maybe it isn't. And I know Mainers, um, you know, we have a lot of uh, rural um, uh, geographic issues here. So maybe that's a better avenue is maybe online to do that. But uh, I know for a lot of people that they, they like to be a little, a little social and uh, meet new people. And this is an, another way to do that too. I just wanted to talk about that because I, I thought that was a really important thing to bring up, especially within Maine, uh, that we just have a really great network of area agencies on aging. And I, I would be remiss if we didn't kind of bring that one up. Mm. But Abby, from your end, what was something that you took away from today's show? Um, I thought it was really important when Iris brought up the fact that when people age and we're caregiving, often we grieve the person twice, right? So once when they tend to lose their personality, maybe they lose some of their critical thinking, maybe they don't recognize us like they used to, their memories are gone. And then again, when they pass away. Um, And I think that initial grieving of kind of their personality and the essence of who they are is not really talked about. And I think it's very much underestimated how much that really affects not only the caregiver, but the family around that person who's aging. So I really liked that she brought that up and, you know, said that we kind of need to honor that grief and really work through it. 
because otherwise it can it can spiral. So I really liked that point. Mm-hmm. And, and I'll I'll add to is again sometimes if you don't address grief, sometimes there's there's going to be other coping me- mechanisms that come out. And one is maybe maybe it's avoidance. Maybe right. it's um, you're less likely to provide care anymore. Right? Maybe right. there's Maybe there's, as she said, maybe you're going to become angry in other situations or with other members of the family. And, you know, uh, again, I can kind of see where, you know, we've had enough uh, either from the social worker's perspective or the therapy perspective uh, from the psychologist. It feels like sometimes we just need to talk through these things and mm-hmm. and be able to recognize the feeling and then maybe talk about it, bring out in the open. I'm thinking about uh, Bodie Simpson there, uh, really kind of acknowledging things and bring them out allows us to really identify them, talk about them and address them. So I think that's a really great point. Yeah. Uh, Curtis, from your, your end, what was, what was something you took away from today's show? Yeah. I'll kind of piggyback on, on actually your takeaway, Ben, and, and, you know, support groups for caregivers, but, you know, Iris did a, a great job. I feel like emphasizing how important it is for caregivers to, to care for themselves. You know, it's, I think clearly we talked about it. I mean, it's a big issue and, and a lot of people face this, but you know, you get so focused on the person you're caring for and you know, your own health may be declining right before your eyes and you're not noticing it. And it, and that may lead to you maybe not being able to give the best care to the person you're trying to, you're trying to care gift to. So it's just so important and I know it's tough and you know, we all have situations, everyone probably listening has situations where they know about how difficult it is to, to step back and say, you know, it, it, you got to take care of yourself, whether it's sleep or eating or just, you know, Iris said she likes to get up in the morning and do a puzzle. That's her thing. You know, like it's, it's just so important. I think for, for everyone involved to have the best care and, and she did a really great job kind of, you know, isolating and pointing that out. Yeah, and I think again the statistic that Iris uh, shared with us that what we had in the in the intro read was, you know, twenty six percent of family givers report their own health is fair to poor. Well, again, those are the ones that admit it, right? Is sure. maybe yeah. that maybe that number is pretty higher because. Yeah. Um, but again, I could see where hey, I, I'm between this uh, this responsibility and this uh, other responsibility in caregiving. And I don't have time to go cook for myself and to have a healthy balanced meal. I don't have time mm-hmm. to go do this. And I'm, you know, maybe I'm grabbing more fast food than I ever have. And I'm, I'm eating three to 4,000 more calories than I'm used to doing whatever the situation is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I could see where, because you, and we've heard this uh, saying a lot in our podcast is maybe you love them more, maybe more than you love yourself. Mm-hmm. And maybe caregiving is an act of loving them more than you love yourself in the moment. Mm-hmm. And because of that, you prioritize them that much that you don't uh, prioritize your own health or or express yourself that self-love in any way or an, enough way to take care of yourself. So I think that's another way to say it, I guess, was, mm-hmm. was the point of that today. But I think that's a really important point is to is to find ways to, to address that and to improve it over, over our lives, especially as, as we're in a caregiving role. Yeah. Well, again, I want to pre, uh, thank everybody for listening in today. Uh, we are at, at episode number 44. So if you want, uh, we're going to have more links to Iris Weichler's uh, publications, uh, her yeah. books, uh, to get that role reversal, how to take care of yourself and your aging parents. We'll have uh, a few of those links there. So to access that, you can go to blog 
www.guidancepointllc.com backslash 44. Again, for episode 44, you can go to that website, find our show notes, find the transcript, uh, find the links to Iris's website and, and some of her publications there. But we really appreciate you tuning in today. I think this was a really important episode and conversation to have. Uh, thanks for listening in and we'll catch you next time. Ladies and gentlemen, you've just listened to an information-filled episode of the Retirement Success in Maine podcast. While this show is about finding more ways to improve your retirement happiness, Guidance Point Advisors' mission is to help our clients create a fulfilling retirement. We do financial planning so that people can enjoy retirement and align their monetary resources to their goals. If you're wondering about your own personal success, we invite you to reach out to us to schedule a 45-minute listening session. Our advisors will have a conversation with you about your goals, your frustrations, and your problems. Make sure you check out Guidance Point Advisors on our blog, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And you can always check out more episodes of this podcast on iTunes and Spotify. And of course, keep on finding your retirement success.